Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and worship today. We thank you that your name is hallowed. It's exalted. It's lifted up high above every other name that is named. Lord, and it is a message of joy to the world that Christ has come. That God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on flesh and joined in our experience as fully human and still fully God. And by so doing has made propitiation for our sins in offering His life freely on the cross. The only gift of eternal life available to fallen man. We lost in our deadness, transgression, depravity of heart and mind are resurrected to newness of life by the work of this great Son of God who came, was born of a virgin, who lived a life like ours in one sense in His humanity, but entirely different in another, keeping to the jot and tittle every last command perfectly of the law of God and thus becoming the perfect, sufficient, effective sacrifice and substitute for our sins on Calvary. But this Son of God did not stay in the grave, but raised Himself again on the third day, and is today ascended, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And so we sing today in honor of your great name, Jesus Christ, joy to the world, our Lord has come. And He now rules and reigns, and we with Him. And we look forward to the day of our own ascending, as it were, to the right hand of the Father beside Him to rule and to reign. We thank you, Father, for these glorious promises that transcend time, these glorious truths that are effective because of your decree, the glorious gift of eternal life that is ours because we are in Christ. We give you praise and worship, Heavenly Father, this morning for your majestic plan, executed perfectly at the fullness of time that is ours today in Christ. Our hearts are overflowing with joy and praise as we think about our salvation made possible through the incarnation and through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in that great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity to share time together in fellowship with the Lord and with the help of His Spirit guiding us through Scripture, and I pray into all truth as it is declared to you this morning. If that prayer is answered, it is not because of my ability to declare, but simply the Holy Spirit's prerogative evidence to you as an unlikely vessel like myself to deliver these words both to my hearing and to yours. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17, please. Matthew 17, while you're turning there. I'll give you the title of this message, and in a moment we'll stand and read eight verses together from the beginning of Matthew 17. The title of today's sermon is Unambiguous Glory. Unambiguous Glory. This again is the record of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, which is a Greek word that means changed in form. And it wasn't so much that Christ had changed in form, but in fact that one aspect of His divine being, namely, 
His pre-existent glory as divine Son of God was evident at this moment to the eyes and to the ears of Peter, James, and John. And so that glory that Christ always and eternally shared, that pre-incarnate glory was made manifest in their experience and in ours as we read in Matthew 17 this morning, unambiguously, that is, clearly and gloriously. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 17, and let us read verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, verse 5, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Three weeks ago, the 30th of last month, we were visiting this passage, this portion of Scripture, where the narrative records this amazing experience where the light of the shining of the glory of Jesus Christ is evident in the onlookers, Peter, James, and John, three privileged representative disciples on a mountain, as it's come to be called, indeed, the Mount of Transfiguration. Several weeks ago, we considered this monolithic milestone in Matthew's Gospel from the contextual perspective of the disciples' reaction to the event. And we explored when we were in this passage how the counter-reaction or response of the disciples teaches us something that we can learn. We saw how worship that is worthy of the Lord's eyes and ears and incense that is sweet-smelling to His nostrils must not be humanistic, human-centered, human-by-design, impulsive or impetuous, but instead needs to be only limited to the prescriptive means of the Scripture, the Word of God. Because mere failed, uh, frail and fallen failures of human beings have nothing in ourselves to bring, but as the hymn says, only to the cross we cling. And so, the calling at the revelation of Jesus Christ through His Word into our hearts in regeneration, as it was at this moment at the transfiguration, is one of acceptable worship. It's a call to worship. Praise the Lord and praise Him the way He has prescribed. 
The reaction of the disciples also teaches us of the shape of the experience of the gospel. It starts with us coming to Him as sinners in our brokenness and our presumption. And then we are terror-stricken at the thought that we stand unreconciled before this majestic, retributive holiness of God. And then we find as we come in contact with our sin that only in salvation is there hope from the terror of our experience should we be left to our own devices. And so we confess, have mercy upon me, a sinner, O Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment of faith and repentance, regeneration, the touch of Jesus Christ through His Spirit, as it were, awakens the broken and frail heart, indeed worse than that, the depraved and dead heart of the human being to newness of life in Christ. We also saw that there are first principles of understanding the Word of God that do not begin with mere intellectual assent. And indeed, in many cases, modern scholarship is the stumbling block, not the stepping stone to understanding, but the unadulterated, pure, clear Word of Christ proclaimed is the only way, the only key to understanding what God has Himself through His Word and His Christ declared. We also saw from the perspective of Christ's ministry arc that Calvary and the events of the gospel were predestined and they sandwiched the prophecy that is of Christ going to Calvary sandwiches these events and so they are there like bookends at the beginning and at the end and indeed we'll find today that in Luke's gospel chapter 9 verse 31 Jesus' exodus or departure to Calvary is the subject of conversation that he has in his transfigured form as he's communicating with Moses and Elijah. So in Christ's ministry arc, we have reached a moment here in the record where we have have, uh, noted in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. We also discover that in Christ's ministry as he unfolds shades of revelation to his disciples that he is building a kingdom but he is doing it counterintuitively to human means. This kingdom would transcend humanity. It would eclipse it entirely and it would be built a different way than the way kingdoms are built these days. It would happen through an unlikely few ransomed from their sin and then commissioned to be his disciples as a minority of a minority group, a tiny group that would go out and nevertheless take ground for the kingdom of God in amazing ways such that he would get the glory. And so we have seen also as a precursor to this event that there's a commissioning of the disciples and a command to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and go and loose what has been loosed in heaven and bind what has been bound in heaven in the message of the gospel through the disciples, the apostles, going forward. And finally, we see that etched upon the consciousness of the apostolic record is the track, is the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration, Evident in the epistles later, especially in Second Peter, when Peter recalls this very moment and says that there is an even superior means. And this is most surprising of all I found in our last study, that you and I have access to a superior means than witnessing with our own eyes the transfigured essence of Christ on that mountain. We have the prophetic word.
the Word of God. And so we've considered the significance of the transfiguration event relative to two contextual perspectives, the counter-reaction of the Pharisees, Christ's ministry arc, and this morning, now after that review, I want to introduce two more. The significance of the transfiguration event relative to two more contextual perspectives, and they are as follows. The covenantal situation, that is the situation or the milestones, the turning of a leaf or a page, if you will, of covenants, old to new. And then secondly, the cosmic connotations. Connotations means ideas, implications attached to another idea. What are the cosmic, that is the biggest possible, most majestic, spiritual, nature of God, nature of man, powerful theological truths connected to this glorious moment at the Mount of Transfiguration? Having considered this monolithic milestone in Matthew's Gospel from the conceptual perspective of the disciples and their reaction and the ministry arc of Christ, we now turn our attention to the bigger picture realities heralded, announced in the transfiguration of Jesus. This reference point that is the Mount of Transfiguration in the grand unfolding of history's theme is absolutely saturated with redemptive, prophetic, supernatural, didactic, that means teaching and instruction, theological, biographical, judicial, eschatological, relating to the future, destiny and times, covenantal, missional and devotional significance, and that is not an exhaustive list of adjectives. I submit to you that this point of contact, that in the experience with the disciples, to the nature and character of Jesus Christ that is evident and represented by this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when His face and clothes shone with His incarnate glory is weighty with supernatural truth. And indeed, it is as if a hand of revelation, the hand of God, the sovereign intervention of God, has reached into the mere finite experience of man and has pulled back our humanity that cloak of humanity just a little that would normally obscure the total nature of Christ. You see, to the disciples, Christ was a very unique and extremely important, unparalleled and singular man in their conception at this time. But that doesn't mean He was high enough in their mind as He ought to have been. Though they considered Him the teacher of teachers, though they considered Him, yea, even the Son of God. And we saw this in the record. When Jesus appearing, walking on the water in His various miracles, supernatural manifestations, engendered the worship of one like Peter who said, Truly, you are the Son of God. There was yet more about Christ and who He was to be revealed to their hearts and minds. And so at this moment, the divine hand of revelation peels back a layer of the cloak of humanity, if you will, that would normally keep them more short-sighted in interacting with Christ on one level, but not quite as deep as this moment represented, to be sure. Thus, the divine nature of Jesus was contained. Sometimes it's contained in our experience and understanding, but certainly the disciples at this time as well. It's contained often like coiled springs encased in wax. 
But as that encased springs, those encased springs, and say, imagine a wax shroud, are placed in the noonday sun of God's divine decree, both in the gospel and in the experience of the disciples, the unambiguous glory of Christ began to spring forth from the gospel from the pages of Scripture, it begins to spring forth from the pages of Scripture to us and in the experience of the disciples so that they might see a fuller display of who He was before He came and who He will be for the salvation of their souls and who He will be raised to be forever and ever. As Peter, James, and John beheld these glorious truths in person, it's no wonder as we see now to greater degree who Christ was in the Scriptures. It's no wonder why the birth of this man, this Son of Man and Son of God, compelled the multitudes of heavenly hosts at His birth to sing glory to God in the highest. And it's no wonder that songs have been written in glorious ode inspired by these events like Joel revealed to us today. And surely there are not enough pages of paper available to us to fill with all the glorious worship that Jesus Christ deserves, even when we contemplate one event like the Mount of Transfiguration and consider the significance that it holds. So let us consider its significance today. Again, the heading, the significance of the Transfiguration event relative to two contextual perspectives. First of all, let's consider its covenantal situation. How does this event relate to the turning of the leaf of covenants, if you will, from the old administration to the new? We see, I would submit to you, symbolically and represented here an illustration, evidence, and affirmation, and declaration of new covenant administration. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. The prophet's of old were no stranger to the unfolding of these events, though they themselves would have been staggered at the way that they are revealed in time. Yet the principles, the prophecies, the truths were recorded long ago in the pages of Holy Scripture, the significance of what was going on here. In Jeremiah 31 We see the servant of the Lord here uniquely gifted with the revelation of what is to come in a future administration, in a different era, where the old covenant order will give way to the new. And so we read in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. The prophet breaks into glorious poetry, himself perhaps singing a hymn in the following verses, 35. We read, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease. From being a nation before me forever, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and if the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel, for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, final verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. Here in the record of the Old Covenant, we see prophesied that there was coming a future day when the New Covenant administration would be distinctly different and would be a fulfillment of the Old. The prophet goes on to declare in the next chapter, chapter 32, he says in verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from before the countries. Again, the voice of God recorded here in first person, to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and, my, and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for in their good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness, with all my heart and all my soul. And as the gospel begins to record Jesus Christ and the message of the kingdom declared, and this particular event, these messages of the old covenant that had been long awaited by the faithful, indeed for hundreds and hundreds of years, were now unfolding in verbal form and in ex existential form, if you will. That is, in this picture, in Matthew 17, we see a fulfillment and we see the Old Covenant language that Jeremiah declared that was pictured and foreshadowed in the types, the figures, the shadows, the ceremonies, and the law now coming to pass before the very eyes of Peter, James, and John. How did this happen exactly? Well, the New Testament goes on to exegete, to expound upon the meaning of this event. And the book that perhaps goes to the greatest lengths to tie the covenants together is, of course, Hebrews. I'll turn you now to a reference in Hebrews chapter 12. First of all, Hebrews 1. Hebrews, as we've begun to study it as well, reminds us that there is a plan for God's revealing of His covenants that has spanned the eons, and it began in the Old Covenant administration and now has extended into the New, and thus will continue in two ages, now continues in its second age until the new heavens and new earth. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This explanation ties together those words from Jeremiah and this event in the Gospels in just a few rich, profound sentences that are inexhaustible in depth. When we see Jesus Christ shining and His resplendent face becomes white like the sun and His clothes are made the same. Verse 2 of Matthew 17, He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. In this event, we have a record in the experience of the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, indeed what has always been true of Christ, that He is the radiance, according to the author of Hebrews, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And now that glory, at this moment in time, is unambiguously revealed. As again, the hand of revelation pulls back the mask of mere humanity, and for a moment we glimpse through the pages of Scripture... We unite ourselves in our experience in reading with what Peter, James, and John saw by seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, His pre-incarnate resplendence shining as the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Later on in Hebrews 12, there is more to be spoken of about the nature of these two covenants, but we'll save that for later. Recognize, though, in Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, there has been a shift. That is, the author of Hebrews conceives of history in two parts. There is the pre-Christ and the post-Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, verse 1 of Hebrews 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah, whom we've just read. Then he says there is a change, signaling a change in covenant administration, reminding us of the covenantal situation in which the events of the transfiguration occurred. And he says in verse 2, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Our traditional dating method of B.C. and A.D. reflect the author of Hebrews' interpretation of the significance of history. There is only one true way to understand history, ultimately speaking. That which God revealed in shadow before Christ, and that which God revealed in fullness after the message of the kingdom and the apostolic interpretation and application was revealed on the scene of this world stage. And so it is, according to the author of Hebrews, that we live in this covenant administration. This second covenant, if you will, which is just a fulfillment and extension of the grace of God and greater revealed revelatory clarity. Where we now see Christ as the Messiah, whereas before there was a hope, a concept, a future faith in that He would come, but not a knowledge of the richness and the identity and the aspects of His nature and character that are now so clearly revealed to us through the apostles. So that which was more ambiguous to us in the old covenant, through the eyes and through the writings of the prophets, 
has now been manifest to our eyes and ears by the Holy Spirit's help in the new. And so the covenantal situation that we see here provides a context for the Mount of Transfiguration. Mountain is significant. Christ shining is significant. Christ speaking is significant. Christ appearing alongside a representative of the law, Moses, representative of the prophets, Elijah, is significant. And all of this signals a change of the guard, if you will. That which was once guarded and proclaimed through human agents like Elijah and like Jeremiah who we read and like Moses who appeared alongside Christ has now been proclaimed to us through Christ Himself. In these last days, He has spoken to us, God the Father that is, by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. So He is the fulfillment, the completion. He is the counterpart to the shadows and signs and signals of old. And He is the one now who has proclaimed fully and finally the revelation of what must we do to be saved. Believe in Him. Believe in Him and only Him for our salvation. And also to understand the significance of our lives, the meaning and the shape of all of history, its past, its present, and its future. And we need to recognize this today as much as the disciples recognized it then. And if we do, we will tap into a well as deep as the disciples were able to tap into. And Peter himself tells us this in his epistle later. That reading deeply into the Word of God and recognizing the significance of Christ now come in the flesh and announcing in Himself the fulfillment of the old is enough to give us faith. Faith like the martyrs. Faith like the faithful of old who grew in their sanctification and continued to preach the Word in spite of its being despised, mocked, and even their own persecution, laying down their lives taking up their cross, following Him, loving it not, that is, their lives, even unto death. The covenantal situation is signaled on the Mount of Transfiguration as a new administration has arrived. And never more clearer prior to this event is the moment now revealed, now this moment revealed to the disciples, Jesus Christ has come. This man is more than a man. We have seen Him now manifest in His glory. The signal for the changing of the covenantal guard is now in our eyes and ears. Secondly, under covenantal situation, let us consider that the law and the prophets have found now their fulfillment in Christ. Turn back briefly with me to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus Christ has said to us, His disciples, speaking after the Beatitudes, that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Verse 17, the Sermon on the Mount continues, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, 
not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ kept the commandments and taught them and indeed proved as fully God and fully man greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And He was the fulfillment as He declared of the law and the prophets. And now as we compare that section of teaching where Jesus is bringing the message some of the realities of His kingdom and its constitution, if you will, to the ears of the onlookers, He now brings it to their eyes in Matthew 17. His clothes became white as light, and we notice this detail in verse 3, this all-important image in Matthew 17, 3. And behold, there appeared to them, that is Peter, James, and John, looking at Jesus Christ now, transfigured, appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses was the mediator of the law. Moses was the one singled out by God as a representative, as an ambassador, as a go-between, an intercessor, if you will, between the Lord and his people. God in his perfection had holiness requirements. Perfection, indeed, they required. There was no flesh, no sin, Even no mere fallen humanity that can stand in the presence of God and live. And so the holiness code was instituted as the primary teaching tool to teach mankind that there is no human-based merit system to be reconciled to God. But there is indeed requirements that must be met. And so we ask ourselves, how then, how can we be reconciled to a holy God as sinners who day after day evidence our frailty and depravity by constantly sinning against the Almighty God because of our blood poisoning inherited from Adam. Well, the sacrificial system that was given to Moses as a type and a shadow revealed the truth to God's people. There was a substitute that God would provide. Prior to this moment in covenant history, We had this dramatic picture on another mountain where God's servant Abraham ascended and he was commanded to sacrifice his son. And just before that moment when the knife was about to plunge into the vitals of his child, there was the divine command to stop and then the divine providence of a a ram in the bush. That was the substitution, sacrifice, That was offered to Abraham. But another son would be born whose life would not be spared. And he would prove to be the ultimate substitute. And so that which was given by way of prophecy and prefiguring to Abraham, and it was systematically mediated and covenant and ceremony to Moses, was now pictured and embodied and personified, if you will, in Christ. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a conversation, a holy exchange of covenantal ideas between those who had gone before, 
And I imagine themselves, their eyes now open to clarity and understanding unprecedented, unprecedented in their experience prior to this point, namely Elijah and Moses. And they saw and they heard from Christ's own lips that He, in His exodus, in His departure to the cross, as Luke declares in chapter 9, verse 31, would be the substitute that the Mosaic order pictured in those animals sacrificed, and that Elijah prophesied and calling a lost people to repentance and faith, prefigured in his own ministry prior to Christ coming. The law and the prophets were not only fulfilled in Christ, but the law and the prophets were here represented in this moment, communicating with Christ. And thus it's a testimony established in the experience of these three witnesses that the law and the prophets were fulfilled in Him. And if they saw, as they looked upon this glorious scene, that Jesus Christ was receiving, as it were, the next in God's incremental stage of revelation, he was receiving the charge, if you will, or, the, or taking on the calling from Almighty God, the next stage in redemptive history. Imagine how that must have rushed into the minds of the disciples and their hearts as a wave, a tidal wave of understanding. Here it was, the final, sufficient, and complete and effective sacrifice, finally, for our sins. There's a Greek word, indeed, it's just the word exodus, that Luke's gospel records when just a phrase or two is authored there to describe the conversation and interaction between Elijah, Moses, and Jesus Christ. And it simply says in Luke that he spoke of his departure. That word in the Greek appears only one other location in that sense, and it's in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. And that's again where Peter refers to this very moment of the incarnation. The only other appearance of that word is also in reference to the events that Peter himself witnessed. And it's one more clue to help us understand the covenantal situation. We're seeing here the law and the prophets visibly fulfilled in Christ, even as he had already in the Sermon on the Mount declared it so. Another note along the lines of law and prophets fulfilled in Christ. There's a theological term for miracle that is a little more specific than we're used to hearing or used to thinking of these days. When we think of miracle, we think of anything out of the ordinary, and we ascribe the term miracle usually to define it. Easton's Bible Dictionary is a little more specific as to the theological definition of miracle, and it includes this phrase. A miracle is designed to authenticate the divine commission of a religious teacher and the truth of his message. A miracle is designed. It is a tool, a means, an instrument by God in His sovereignty to authenticate to provide witness and testimony and evidence of His, the Father's, divine commission of a religious teacher and the truth of His message. Generally speaking, if you look at the corpus of the canon, if you look at all of the Scriptures, 
you find generally three great eras of miracle. You find the era of Moses, where, as you recall, the plagues demonstrated the power and sovereignty of God over and over again in supernatural, manifold ways in judgment on Pharaoh and company. You find the Red Sea opening up, providing safe passage and salvation for all who are baptized therein. That is Moses and the million or so, however history records the number, following him through to Canaan. You see the evidence of the miraculous hand of God routing the enemies at every turn, not only in the collapsing of those waters, drowning the adversaries of God's covenant-favored people, but also in the lifting of Moses' hands over other war scenes where this group of slaves just newly, you know, recently freed from bondage, begins to declare victory over their enemies one by one as they move through this wilderness time of wandering. Water springs from the rock. Manna appears every morning. Quail are flown in by the hand of God. A serpent is raised up in the wilderness and divine healing touches all who look upon its form. And over and over again, The miraculous divine intervention and suspension of the natural order testifies and authenticates by divine commission the the credentials of a religious teacher and what he is sharing, his message, namely that of Moses. And so that is the first era of miracle where we see in its more specific theological form its prevalence in Scripture. And then the second era ironically, is with Elijah. And at this time, miracles and their evidence through his ministry, authenticating his divine commission from the Lord of glory, increase again in frequency and intensity. And we see in these particular times then, God has chosen to reveal more in a condensed way his message of hope and salvation for his people and of course the third era of miracle no one would contest and that is in indeed the ministry of Jesus Christ himself and then spilling over to the apostles and so those three great eras of miracle in scripture were there represented with their chief agents Moses Elijah and Christ And so the covenantal situation is heightened as we take note of these details. There's also what I call a tale of two mountains we could draw from this text. In the covenantal situation, we have in the record of Moses, the Mount Sinai experience where the law was mediated to the people. Turn with me, though, to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read prophetically, we read of a prophecy of a new mountain. And so there is comparison and contrast of covenants, old to new, administrations then pictured in the imagery, the geographic imagery of mountain. In Hebrews chapter 12, we pick up on these ideas that the author uses to declare this message of covenant to his audience, he says in 12.18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, 
and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Pausing there, the author is recounting Exodus 19.12 and the surrounding verses later in 2019, parallel passage, Deuteronomy 4.11 and 25. And this is the moment where the law is delivered on Mount Sinai and is delivered in a manifestation of signs of sa- in the sound, in the senses, in the sky, in the elements that include blazing fires, darkness, gloom, and tempest, and the sounds of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. An absolutely terrifying experience. A tale of two mountains. That's the tale of Sinai. But there's another mountain in God's covenant history that would be revealed, and it's now through the pages of Scripture being revealed to the reader. Verse 20, we pick up on this instruction. For they could not endure the order that was given, speaking of the old covenant people. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then to tie this imagery together, we see this transition in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A tale of two mountains, Sinai and Zion. The former covenant revelation that appeared on Sinai was a revelation of tempest, that which cannot be touched, that which was excluded from the experience of the people, That which was attended by wonders and by judgment and by a fearful recognition of their sin and the dire consequences if they even approached the mountain has now given way to a different experience. And on this second mountain, Mount Zion, we now see the themes of eternal life, safety, security, surety, foundation, and redemption. Notice the difference in picture, even as it's illustrated in the Mount of Transfiguration, at Mount Zion, as it were, to Mount Sinai. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the people, the representatives of the disciples, were actually called up the mountain. Moses alone and Joshua, in some cases, was called up the mountain in the past. But the people had to keep their distance, and even the animals And if anyone crossed that boundary, they had to be stoned to death because they had crossed a line that was forbidden and they may not enter. The same picture and imagery is seen in the temple order worship of old. There was a curtain and just one privileged man was ordained and commissioned to pass through into the Holy of Holies to make intercession for the people, the high priest. And if he wasn't perfectly ceremonially clean and consecrated according to every prescription of the law, he himself would be struck dead in a moment if he crossed that boundary. But there would come a day 
when the boundary would be erased by the sprinkled blood of the new covenant, and all who are in Christ would cross it and enter Mount Zion and approach Mount Zion, if you will. And all sprinkled with the blood of Christ would go through the torn veil in the temple and have free access to the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, because of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a tale of two mountains. In the one, you couldn't touch it or you died. In the other, the Mount of Transfiguration, that is a great picture of Mount Zion, if you will. Jesus touches the disciples and explains to them what happened. There is a tangible contact with the revelation of the divine, with the holy, and with the presence of God. This is different because it is Jesus. In the prior experience, there was burning, fire, darkness, and gloom. There were sounds and sights and manifestations of judgment. In the new Mount Zion, there is, in fact, resurrection, glorification, redemption. In the old order, in Mount, on Mount Sinai, there was a voice that echoed from the heavens. And it was so terrifying to the ears of the hearer that they begged God to be quiet, to stop speaking, for fear that one more word uttered from the celestial throne room of glory might be their undoing and slay them in His perfect holiness by just the vocal tones of Him uttering from glory. The sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But on Mount Zion, we feast freely from the word of Christ. And we do so, yes, with the fear of God. But we also do so with the assurance in His body and blood of our own reconciliation. And so the word of Christ is there and provides understanding and comfort for the disciples. In the record again in Matthew 17, as they were coming down the mount, well before that in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And he goes on to explain the meaning of what they have just experienced. And Al also answers other questions that they have. But notice, these times are very rare in the record. There is also a voice that preceded the voice of Christ from God the Father speaking in verse 5 when that bright cloud overshadowed them. And He said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him as He had done in Matthew 4. But this time, on this mountain, the situation was different. Instead of the disciples begging that that voice would be quiet for fear that they would be incinerated in that moment. It was the voice of Christ that alleviated their fears and led them to instruction and understanding. The tale of two mountains, Sinai versus Zion. The old mountain, the old covenant, you could not so much as touch it or you would be stoned. Why the method of stoning? Or it was also uh, prescribed that you would die for that capital crime by the throw of the javelin. It's because those who are responsible for punishing you for crossing that line 
would have to do so from a distance. If you so much as touched the stone or the ground that was guarded and fenced by the holiness of God, you would be destroyed. You would be condemned. The wages of sin is death. And the civil penalty of that offense was indeed capital punishment. You would be destroyed, and justly so. But in the second mountain, on the second mountain, Jesus calls them up. He calls Peter, James, and John. He touches them, and then he communicates with Elijah and Moses that he himself would be the one to die. That he would go in his own exodus and departure to the cross. And thus in his death, reconciliation with the presence of God and the sinfulness of the people would be accomplished. In the old covenant, Mount Sinai, there is the blood of Abel that cries out. The blood of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, it cries out a curse from the ground. In the new covenant, there's the blood of Christ. And it cries out eternal life for all who are under its cleansing power. Thus, the covenantal situation of the Mount of Transfiguration is significant. It's a representative moment in the narrative course of the gospel of a change in the orientation of us to the Lord because the fulfillment of the law and the prophets has arrived. And now this second administration is upon us. Secondly, let's consider the cosmic connotations of this event. There's the sovereignty of the Son of Man that was spoken of in Matthew 16, verse 26, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Here Jesus has proclaimed, immediately at least in the record prior to the Mount of Transfiguration, that He has judicial authority. That He is the Son of Man who holds the prerogative and the right of retributive judgment, retributive justice. That He will come and under certain conditions... In His kingdom interaction, He will repay each person for what He has done. Now think about this for a moment. This man who is speaking to you as He declares in His kingdom power and glory, He will return as a conquering judge who has the right to dispense ultimate judgment and payment on wrongdoers. Must be very curious to you as you look upon Him. This was a lowly individual born in a manger as we recall who did not look the part. He did not wear the kingly robes of the magistrate. He was not graced with the fame and the pedigree that the religious elite and the ruling class had in his day. He was not born to the aristocracy. He was a mere man, a commoner who walked with the people. So these words must have been quite the juxtaposition when they looked upon the humble form of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, in His rustic apparel. And thought, this man, how can it also be that he is coming with angels, the glory of his Father, to repay each according to what they have done? Imagine how difficult this reality and this prophecy might have been in the processing 
uh, might have been in the minds of the disciples as they tried to process it until it is about six days later. 17.1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And now as this scene, that is the transfiguration, unfolds before them, it certainly underscores unambiguously the glory of Jesus Christ. As we've mentioned, there is a crack of revelation opened into who Christ is and the fullness of His nature. His divinity is now displayed before them. And so within a week from receiving this prophecy, they also receive a glimpse of reality that provides for them a window past the noetic shroud of temporality. Noetic means that which relates to the mind. You see, you and I are in the same situation that all of mankind is. In our sin and in the situation of fallenness, our finitude, our mere humanity, and the temporality of our existence is our biggest enemy in some ways. Sin is certainly our biggest enemy. But unbelief is certainly the consequence of living in light of our mere experience as finite human beings until and unless it is transcended by the Holy Spirit, giving us a glimpse of reality in our heart, in our mind, beyond what we merely see with our eyes. I was listening to a debate this week, and it was on this question. Is God a delusion? Is God a delusion? Now, this question is made popular by atheists with a chip on their shoulder, like Richard Dawkins, who have wrote about the so-called God delusion in his famous bestseller. So standing on the pseudo-authority of science, he has declared that all who believe in the supernatural and anything religious, anything transcending the mere temporal experience of the human being is a deluded idiot, is clinically insane. He insinuates it's someone who is not capable of demonstrating rational thought at least as far as when he is speaking to matters of faith and not matters of mere human empirical experience. Well, I submit to you, this man is not particularly evil. He is under himself the same delusion that we are all born unto. We are slaves to our own blindness. We cannot see until we are given eyes to see. The way the Gospel of Matthew declares, Jesus said to certain ones it is not given, but to you it has been given to be known. Thus it is indeed the claims of the atheists today are exactly the opposite. It is delusiony, delusionary to believe that there is only what we can feel and see and taste and smell in our sensory experience. Well, the disciples were no stranger to this basic understanding of reality. They were humans too, after all. Second Peter, the uh, epistle that one of the disciples who witnessed the transfiguration later recorded, spoke of this malady of human experience when he said in Second Peter chapter 3, Richard Dawkins is not unique and he proves as much by saying, Knowing this first of all, Second Peter 3, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were 
from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He goes on to say that, but according to his promise in verse 15, 13, excuse me, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Later he says in verse 17, You therefore, speaking to his believing audience, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's aim in this epistle was the equanimity of the beloved, the surety of heart, the steadfastness of soul, the stability of conviction that feasting upon God's prescribed means would give them, even though their eyes would normally only see the physical, and even though they would be surrounded by scoffers, darkened and deluded in their sin as we once were, who had not been moved by the sovereign Spirit of God to have eyes to see as of yet, and deliberately overlooked the fact that God had brought this world into being by His Word, had judged it by His Word, would restore it by His Word, and had given us His Word as collateral and guarantee. So when we look to the Scriptures and we ask ourselves, How do we convince ourselves? How do we live in faith that Jesus is a sovereign Lord who has justice in His grasp, that is the Lord of glory and this universe and has all things at His disposal even as He created it by the word of His power? Well, just as Peter says that people remain scoffing in their skepticism and the theology of the deluded today is to deny the existence of God, they do so because they deliberately overlook the facts of God's Word. So our our charge then, conversely, ought to be to deliberately consider the facts of God's Word. I encourage you in this age of darkness, of deluded unbelief, to consider the fact that Jesus Christ was transfigured before these three apostles. And they gave a reliable record of their experience. Consider that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophets and the law of old. Consider that He prophesied His own death and that He rose again. Consider these facts and believe. Consider these facts and stand firm. Consider the cosmic connotations of this event. The Son of Man has given emphatic, inarguable, demonstrable evidence that He is the Judge and Lord of glory when He reveals to His disciples the bright shining of His pre-incarnate nature. Also, I beg you to consider by way of cosmic connotation the triune testimony of the Godhead in this event. As the bright cloud overshadows and the voice declares, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased our mind is immediately brought back to Matthew three seventeen, where those same words virtually are heard again 
or are heard for the first time in the ears of the onlookers at the baptism of Jesus Christ. And this is not common. The Lord does not audibly speak very often in history. We can count on two hands, perhaps, these occasions. And thus the rarity of this particular event and its value that is therefore parallel to it needs to be taken into view. If God chooses to speak, what He reveals in what is spoken is of rare value indeed. And what is revealed in this exchange is the triune testimony of the Godhead. Redemption could and would be accomplished because God the Father had planned and God the Son would purchase and God the Holy Spirit would apply. And so we consider the thrice holy Godhead, one in essence, three in person, and the self-disclosure of these truths bypassing the normative means when the voice echoes from heaven, sovereign by His sovereign and revelatory prerogative. And finally, under cosmic connotations, we consider the revelation of Jesus Christ's divine nature. Again, like coiled springs bursting bursting forth in the scorching heat, this predestined glory shines on this wax encased, uh, if you will, coiled spring, and it bursts forth, and the incomparable glory is there for us to behold. Consider even as we remember and commemorate in this season the juxtapositions that are evident in Scripture. Though Christ came in humility, His birth was announced by heralding hosts of heaven. Though He walked and fellowshiped with the common, the lowly, and those of of mean estate and not of earthly privilege, yet He privileged those who were with Him to experience, among other things, His word spoken and revealed, and in this case, to these three, the brightness of His incarnate shining. As we note these examples in Scripture, we can see that reasons to rejoice and to behold the glory of God and the cosmic connotations that are there revealed in a single event like the transfiguration are overflowing in their depth and profundity. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 declares that God has given us treasure in jars of clay. And in that way, even our experience is something like this juxtaposition, the Son of Man who here is revealed to have a divine nature. And we, lowly fallen human beings, have a treasure inside, the indwelling Spirit of God. And so that juxtaposition is evident in our own experience. I'd like to close by reading Luke chapter 2, a few verses of the day of Christ's arrival. His incarnation here on earth. These dovetail really well with the hymn that Joel opened our service with. In Luke chapter 2, we find in the record here how the divine nature would arrive. It would arrive in a stable, in a manger. It's hard to imagine a more humble means. Born of a virgin in a small city called Bethlehem. But there was another thing that happened on this night. And we read of it in Luke 2, verse 8. In that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And note, in this prior but parallel manifestation, we commemorate even in this season, even on Christmas Day, this message in the, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, There's a prophecy given that precedes it from the mouth of Zechariah of a dawning glorious light that would arrive with tender mercies of our God like a sunrise visiting us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And then on the next page, as it were, there's the angels filling the realms of glory, heralding and announcing, surrounded by the glory of God, that He has come, born to us this day. And multitudes of the heavenly hosts are called together to fill the skies with His praises in the highest, surrounded by the effervescent glory of God, saying, announcing, proclaiming, glory to God in the highest on earth and peace uh, among those with whom He is pleased. And thus the unambiguous glory is revealed to those who are humble of heart. The cosmic connotations of the revelation of Jesus Christ within Scripture are too rich and too deep for uh, certainly one message to even scratch the surface and indeed a whole lifetime to peruse. But my prayer for us today, this morning, this season, is that we would at least be encouraged to search more deeply and diligently the Scriptures for the treasures therein contained that would move us to voices of unified praise joining with the angels that heralded Christ's arrival, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glorious truths of Your Scriptures. We thank You that You took on flesh, and were born to us. We thank you, God, that you have not left us without hope. We have Christ, indeed, and the Spirit's power to carry us home. We also have the glorious testimony of your truth written in Scripture. I pray that we would hold these as our most treasured possessions this season, ever more so as you awaken us to their great value, in all that you might be glorified, and your name might be echoed from us to others that you would call. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.